So hopefully everyone's got their Bibles. All right. Well, today we're going to consider the power of the spoken word. In a moment, I'm going to make a number of fairly common statements. Some of them you might have actually heard said to you at some point in your life. I want you to think about how each of these statements might affect you if someone was to sincerely say them to you today. Think about these statements. Will you marry me? Not like you and me, literally, but if you heard that said by somebody who loved you and cared for you, what kind of emotions would it stir in your heart? What kind of an effect and impact would it have on you? How about this one? We find the defendant guilty. I want you to know I am so very proud of you. How does that make you feel when you hear something like that? I'm afraid we've done everything that we can do for her. It's a baby girl. Still haven't heard that quite the way I hoped, but uh, <laughs> we got our baby girl anyway. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but there's been a terrible accident. These are phrases, some of which you would be elated to hear, some of which you would be devastated to hear. It's amazing how a few short words have the potential to be so powerful. I have no doubt that for some, even just hearing these phrases in a completely hypothetical context, like you just heard them, triggered a small-scale emotional reaction in you. Perhaps they reminded you of a time in your life when someone said something like that to you. Words can be encouraging. They can be inspiring in life-changing ways. And at the same time, words can carry the potential to just devastate our hearts. They can be almost haunting in the ways that they can impact our countenance and drive us into despair or confusion. It is by gospel words being spoken and preached that those in darkness have come to see their need for a Savior. Words are the means by which God chooses to reveal His true self to us. It is by words that we enter into covenant with God and with one another. It is by words that we chisel out an understanding of our identity. And it is by words that God reveals His character and plan to us. Communication, at its very core, is one intelligent being attempting to relate to another intelligent being. And when the right words are used, they have the power to form a bridge of sorts, a relational bridge from one person's heart and mind to another person's heart and mind. When the wrong words are chosen, it can cripple our ability to relate to one another. Even a thoughtless phrase that is forgiven by the one who is offended can still reshape a relationship for years to come. And so let us approach this topic of words, how to use them, but also how to receive them with great concern. Let us understand not only how to be in control of the words that we say, but also how to be in control of the way that we respond to the sometimes hurtful words of others. So in our journey through Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon has just acknowledged the sinfulness of man, and we spent all last Sunday working on one verse, verse 20 of chapter 7, that said, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so last week, we paid attention to the fact that sin is a universal condition. It affects every human being that has walked the earth with one exception. We know who that is. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, but not inheriting Adam's sin, walked this world in a way that none of us can imagine. He was perfectly without sin, he followed God's every command, and he did it with a joyful heart. But for the rest of us, sin is a universal challenge we must face. We also learn that sin is inherent. It is not just something that afflicts us from outside. It doesn't corrupt us. It is the corruptness in us that works its way out through disobedience. And so it is only logical that right after Solomon draws attention to this, this important truth, that in verses 21 through 22, that he would prepare for the inevitable impact that our sin will have on the words that we say to one another. And so we continue in the text. Chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Let's take a moment and ask that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts in such a way that we can meditate on this passage of Scripture, that we can process it, and that we can apply it to our lives as we leave this place, hopefully with more understanding of the, of the concept than we entered with. Lord, we pray, God, that as we look at your word, that you would open our eyes to what we really need to see today. Every word that is recorded in your scripture is flawless. It is God-breathed and trustworthy. It is perfectly reliable to us. You inspired its content. And you have governed the means by which these words have been kept safe over the generations, Lord, so we would have them today, so that I might teach them to this congregation this morning with your guidance. But our words, God, are not perfect and true. The words of man are often corrupt. Sinful people who need redemption and forgiveness, simple people who need wisdom and guidance have gathered together today. We all need you to instruct us. So please help us, Lord God. Help us to understand what you have put before us. Help us to not be unaware of the dangers of speaking carelessly in such a way that might damage someone else's heart. And help us also be ready for the words that will be cast against us as we stand representing your Son, Jesus Christ, in this world. I pray that we will each get the sense today of the words that you would have us meditate upon. And I pray, Father, that we would grow in our discipleship as we seek to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in his perfect name. Amen. Our first instruction from the text today is not actually about our words, but about the strongly critical words of other people. Solomon urges, do not take all of these kind of critical words to heart. What does it mean exactly to take something to heart? When we take something to heart, we allow it to render a mark of sorts upon our conscience. We receive it as truth, we let it past our mental defenses, and we give it permission in a sense to make an emotional impression on our hearts that we can have that we might be changed by what they said. So when we take someone's negative words to heart, it's going to produce some kind of remorse reaction inside of us that might take the form of guilt. We might feel ashamed for the thing that the person said to us. It might make us feel despair or responsibility. It might lead us even to repentance. It will also likely trigger a a series of practical responses in, in in our physical life. That might be as simple as a blush. When somebody says something that embarrasses you, you might turn red all over, especially if you're an Irishman like me. That might be as complicated as as making a vow to never do the same mistake again. When somebody calls you out for doing the wrong thing, you might be so impacted by the damage it did to them and the hard words that they shared back to you that you might redouble your efforts and make a commitment to not make that same mistake another time. A lot of how you react will depend on just what is said and by whom it is said by. But be assured that our actions flow from the heart. Remember last week, as we spoke about the sinfulness of man, and we looked at Matthew, and we saw how Jesus reminded us that it's not the thing that we eat that makes us corrupt, it is the corruptness of our heart, the things that flow out of us that are corrupt in the world. And so we have to remember that our actions flow out of our heart. When we take to heart the things that people say, it's going to affect the way we act as well as the way that we think and feel. So before a word that is spoken against us makes it to the heart, Solomon cautions us to direct it somewhere else first. The idea is that we need to think more clearly about the words of criticism that make their way to our ears indirectly before we allow their meanings to encroach upon our soul. There's some very good reasons why we should be careful not to simply receive every word that we hear about us as, at face value. First of all, the, the negative things that people say about you are not always correct. They are not always accurate expressions of truth. When First Family Church started, there wasn't another church really in the area that had a name like First Family Church, but we've been around for uh, many years now, almost 20 years. 
And over that 20-year span, several churches have started or have changed their names to names that are very similar to our church. And I remember one time meeting someone in the community. I began to talk to her about things of faith, and, and she said that she was interested in the Lord God, that she wasn't going to church at the time, so I invited her to come to our church. I said, we're First Family Church, and I told her where we met. And she said, oh, no, I, I, can't, I can't visit your church. I've heard about the things that go on there. And I thought, what things have you heard about? I was instantly, as a shepherd, burdened by what she said because I wanted to know, had we made a mistake? Did we do something wrong? And as our conversation continued, I realized that she was getting us mixed up with another church in town that had a very similar name to our church. And so I was, it broke my heart to know that there was a possibility that somebody might have been thinking about First Family Church wrongly. Sometimes somebody might say a critical thing against you, but it may have something to do with a misunderstanding or a mix-up. Sometimes it's not totally accurate. Other times, curses may come from someone who has a distorted perspective on the situation. Those judgments that they render against you could be lacking the right context, or perhaps they are opinions that are declared without the benefit of knowing the full story. If someone has their facts wrong, then their cursing of you could be an extension of an inaccurate perception rather than a real problem that exists in you. So to take it to heart too soon would do you unnecessary harm. So we've got to be careful. The things that people say against you may not actually be true. They might not be completely accurate. There may be more to the story. Secondly, the negative things that people say about you are not always honest and sincere. Satan is described in God's word as the father of lies. But unfortunately, he has many illegitimate children in the world that we live in. Deception abounds in this world, which is all the more reason why our first reaction to what is said against us should be passed through the filter of our intellect before it is allowed to be taken seed in our hearts. The emotional component of man is more easily deceived than the intellectual component of man is. So some of the cursing that people will utter against you is intended to distort the truth. Some of, of these criticisms you may hear will have been quite exaggerated. Others may have been imagined completely. So this is another reason why we should be hesitant to immediately take to heart Difficult or harsh things that people say against us. Thirdly, the negative things that people say about you are not always warranted or appropriate. Notice that in verse 21, the preacher tells us, don't take to heart all the things that people say. Sometimes people will curse you because you need to be cursed, because you have done something wrong, you have sinned against them. Their criticisms may be warranted. You may need to take that offense to heart, consider your actions, and then make appropriate changes in yourself. But even when you have erred, there will be times when the response of the person that you offended far outseeds the mistake that you made in the first place. The punishment of their derision and harsh words doesn't necessarily match the crime. Not every mistake is worthy of a curse. The universal and inheritance inherent realities of our sinfulness ensure that we will make mistakes, that we will offend others. But people can be oversensitive and will sometimes make a bigger deal out of the things that you have done wrong than is really fitting. In those cases, criticisms might be rendered without compassion. Your accuser may have overly vilified you to make a point. And it would not be wise to play into that exaggeration. It would not be wise to take that too deeply to heart. Once a person's offense gets to the point that they are firing out curses against their assailant, their words are usually not intended to help anymore. They're not intended to better the person they're criticizing. They are intended to hurt the person who is being criticized. So we need to consider these things before we take an offense to heart. If you take a curse to heart that really shouldn't be taken to heart, what might be the negative result of that? Well, you might become paralyzed with fear. Oh man, I, I blew it again. I, I, I can't say anything that can be perceived as negative. It might cause you to withdraw 
and to second-guess yourselves and to be quiet and to not be active in your relationships with others because you're so worried that you're going to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing and someone's going to blast you for it. You might become unnecessarily harsh to yourself. You might condemn yourself and be tempted to forget the gift of God's grace. Yes, we do sin, but praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. The God that we worship here today is a God who is willing to overcome our weakness. He does not say, clean up your act and come to me and we'll see whether you fit in my kingdom. Rather, he says, come to me, sinners. Come to me, brokenhearted. Come to me, you who are prone to mistakes, you who are prone to wander. I will give you the grace that you need. I will clean your wounds. I will bring you near to me by my merit, not by yours. But when somebody criticizes us and we take it to heart and it wasn't warranted, sometimes we can become overcome, overcome with grief for what we did and for the mistakes that we made. And it can cause us to, to forget the amazing grace that has been poured out onto us by Christ. Or you might even take seriously words that even the person who spoke them didn't take too seriously. I remember one instance where somebody said a word to me of criticism and I held on to that for several years, thinking about it, mulling it over, worrying about the impact that it might have if I made mistakes like that again. And when I saw that person after several years of being separated from them, I began to talk to them and, about these changes that I had made in my life and asked if, if, if they remembered that incident. And they said, I wasn't even serious about that. I was joking. And I had taken it so much to heart that I had burdened myself with something unnecessarily for years. So we should be careful about what we take to heart. We should be really careful about how we receive the words that people share with us. Ecclesiastes 7, 21-22, describes a wise defense against wounding words. We should consider the perspective and the motives of the person who is speaking. Notice in verse 21, he says, Lest, your servant, lest you hear your servant slander you. In other words, be careful about what you're listening to you might hear your servant slander you, and the implication there is that they're just talking. They don't really have much merit behind what they say, but you might hear that complaint against you, and it might cause you to be overly grieved. It is not a coincidence here that the preacher uses a subordinate as an example. To Solomon, remember, this is the king of Israel, just about anyone in the kingdom would have fallen into that subordinate category, right? Just about anybody would be considered a servant to Solomon. But it was very common to have servants in the home, to have people who were paid or unpaid who were helping out with things around the house. And the term could have just as easily been used to describe a number of leader-subordinate relationships. It could talk about a father and his son or his children. It could talk about an employer and his employee. Those who are under authority <clears throat> are apt to grow resentful to those who possess authority. They typically desire what the other person has obtained. And so there may be a tendency for servants to see their masters through a distorted lens, a lens affected by covetousness, sometimes jealousy, or even resentment. And so a leader needs to be able to understand that his judgments will not always be perceived or received well by others, even if they are right, even if they are necessary. If that leader takes every whispered complaint too seriously, it's likely going to hinder his ability to lead. He may become like Israel's first king. You remember King Saul? A man who many people thought highly of because he was big and strong and handsome, but inside he was small. Inside Saul questioned constantly whether the people had affection for him, whether he was good enough. And so when the people began to complain against his policies, even when he was leading the right way, he began to second-guess himself. He, he began to skirt back from his responsibilities to the point where, in one instance, Saul was to wait for the prophet Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. That was the job of the priest and the prophet. And yet, because the people were grumbling and the people were impatient, he didn't want them to have disfavor with him. So he offered up the sacrifice, and in doing so, violated a sacred ordinance, a structure that had been given to the people of Israel for their good. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So there may be times when somebody criticizes you, and you can see that perhaps 
They are angry for other reasons. Maybe there's something going on in their life that is not even related to you, but they are taking it out on you. Perhaps they are just frustrated with their station and they haven't learned to have joy wherever God has planted them. In those moments of clarity and maturity, it may be best to simply just overlook the offense and to not let those words hang up your heart. Secondly, we would be wise to remember who the real judge of our lives are. Our character and our actions must be judged by the Lord God. He is the ultimate one to decide whether we are pleasing or not pleasing. Since God alone is the one that determines whether we are sinners or saints, His view of us should really be what matters. If He calls you a saint, it will never be by your own doing. It will be because His Son, Jesus Christ, has radically transformed you. It is because His grace has been poured out upon you, because He has taken your broken state and made you well. He has taken your dead spirit and made it alive. Solomon's stalled search for meaning. We've been going through this book of Ecclesiastes where he keeps looking for contentment and fulfillment under the sun. He keeps looking for happiness through earthly means, through the ways of man, apart from God, and he again and again and again cannot find it. Even though he has pursued it through wisdom, even though he has pursued it through great effort, he has not been able to find contentment apart from God. And this this frustration that must be building over and over again must remind him in some ways of the frustrations of trying to lead people when they don't want to be led. God has the, the, the means and the will to overcome our sin, but man continually wants to strive against his leader. So we should allow this one, God, who is judge over us, to determine whether or not we are happy with the state of our heart and the state of our actions. Sometimes God will use another person as an agent of his judgment, won't he? You probably have a brother or sister who you respect, who has come to you in the past and has helped you to see a flaw in yourself that needed to be dealt with, that needed to be uh, corrected. So do not build these defenses so high. Solomon is not saying, take nothing to heart. He's saying, don't take to heart everything that you hear. Be discerning about what you receive as truth, because not everyone's judgment is worthy of your consideration. Some people you know are just critical in spirit. Some people you know are hurt by things that don't even relate to you, and they're taking it out on you. A wrong word intended to harm you will not go overlooked by the one true judge. So while when somebody says something wrong against us, we may feel compelled to see justice done, we may feel compelled to defend ourselves and to drag the truth into the light, remember that the Lord God above sees all and hears all. And that person will ultimately be held accountable for the things that they said to you in error. So our God is is our judge. We don't need to let man be our judge. And if we're trying to have two masters, if we're trying to please men and please the one who has redeemed us, then we're going to find our hearts divided. One more component of Solomon's wisdom that must must, must not go unnoticed is the fact that you too have spoken with sinful motives and methods. Be eager and quick to forgive as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you for saying the wrong things to people around you. Who among us can plead not guilty to the charge of speaking badly about another person? We have all fallen into this error. We are all responsible for this kind of behavior from time to time. And I have no doubt that many of the times you have spoken an ill word of a person and then were found out for what you had said, you regretted it. You wished you could run it back and take those words away. You never meant to say those things in a way that would harm, but they got out of your mouth before your brain could say no. We've all been there before. Though God's word is perfect, man's words are far, far from perfect. And they often have the sad effect of doing great harm on others. So when someone says a negative word about you, immediately consider the fact that you have made the same mistake to others before. While I cannot stop you from being negligent and careless with your words towards me, I can submit myself to God's leading when it comes time for me to open my mouth and speak. So each one of us needs to help the problem by paying close attention to the words 
that we say to one another. There's a, a little verse in the pastoral letter to Titus that I think gives us some very valuable instruction in regard to this matter. So in Titus chapter 3, um, starting in verse 2, this is again a letter from one elder, the Apostle Paul, to another elder, Titus. Titus is given charge of the church in Crete, and so Paul is giving him instructions on how to lead them well. And he says in verse 2, Remember, or remind those who are in Crete to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So one at a time, each of these four commands the Apostle Paul gives are worthy of our consideration today as we try to figure out how we might keep God's church healthy by being careful about the words that we say to one another. First of all, speak evil of no one. The phrase here to speak evil in the Greek is literally do not blaspheme other people. Do not treat someone with less dignity than they deserve. Now, we often think of that in terms of blaspheming God. We know that that is wrong, right? We're not to take God's name in vain. We're not to speak of him as less than what he is. Do not treat God with less honor and reverence and glory than he deserves. But we can also blaspheme one another. Every human being in this room was made in the image of God, and there is a value to them. There is a dignity that they deserve, not because the Constitution says so, but because God has put his stamp on you. You bear the image of God in some way, shape, or form. And so when we speak inaccurately or dishonestly about someone, or we render truthful judgments, but we do it without love, then we're not showing them the dignity that they deserve as bearers of God's image. Gossip is like the sand poured into the crankcase of an engine. If you are trying to have a church where love abounds, where people care for one another's needs, where we are constantly in prayer for one another and serving one another in love, then gossip must be eradicated. Because the more we talk negatively about one another, the less trust we can have as a body. The less we will feel accepted and cared for among the people that we call our church family. Ecclesiastes 7.21. Remember it says, lest you overhear. In other words, he's pointing to this idea that Solomon may hear the gossip of his subordinates and it might cause him grief and weigh heavy upon his heart. Speak words directly to people. Don't just go around and talk about problems that don't have anything to do with the people you're talking to. Go to the person who you have an issue with and talk directly to them with respect. Have the courage to go face to face with them and say, because I love you, this problem, I want to work it out with you. I don't want to talk badly about everybody else and hopefully, you know, passive aggressively, you'll hear it in the grapevine and you'll change the way you act. No, I want to come to you because my relationship with you matters to me. And so let's talk about this issue. Even your criticism should be a godly ointment to your brother or system, sister rather than a, uh, a systemic poison to them. We are to secondly avoid quarreling. Sometimes in our sinful nature, we just want to fight. I think there is in some ways a thrill to the idea of confrontation. There is a thrill to putting yourself up against another person. And, and those fights don't always take the form of fists. Sometimes they are verbal battles. Verbal battles that we, we blast each other through text message, through email, uh, through conversations on the phone, or through interactions in our social circles. Certain words or turns of phrase are fire starters by design. They pick at the weakness of a brother or sister. They uncover like a burning ember that has been underneath the ground. They uncover that ember and get the fire going again. We know where it's headed. We want to blame the other person for taking it there, but it's often on us because of the words that we use. We can bless our neighbors by making a sincere effort to avoid unnecessary conflict. Some conflict is necessary, isn't it? We can't avoid all conflict. Conflict is a part of life. But there is so much in life that need not be fought over or could be handled with more peaceable words than we are naturally willing to use. 
as a side note, we, uh, we had 11th Commandment yesterday. This is a ministry that we try to do once a month where we team up as guys and we go out into the community and help families that need some help around their homes. And I was having a conversation with Brother John uh, about um, serving and about the joys of helping other people out. And he made this great observation. He said that when we are at work together, we have less time to fight against one another. Isn't that the truth? When we are fixed on the mission of the gospel, when we care about the lost, and we are doing the will of God together, then we're not just sitting around bored with nothing to do, so we don't have as much time to just lob bombs at one another. So if you struggle with, with gossip or you're constantly picking other people, ask yourself, how am I engaged with service with that person that I have so many problems against? How am I coming alongside them together to be the church with that person? Am I serving the Lord God? Am I using my time wisely? Or have I given myself so much spare time that I have nothing better to do than cause problems for those who are trying to be productive? So we are to avoid quarrels, friends. We are also to exercise gentleness. Be gentle as you speak with your brothers and sisters. Understand that the things that we say have the power to hurt. Let us care for the well-being of our fellow Christians. Let us care for the well-being of our neighbor who doesn't yet know Christ. When a thing is potentially dangerous, you proceed with caution. And that is why we are not to be quick to, to anger, quick to speak, but instead, according to Brother James, we are to be slow to speak and slow to anger because a little bit of extra thought behind the things that we say has the potential of preventing an offensive wound to the one that we care about. The families in the church are often criticized for disciplining their children. They say, well, look at the archaic ways of the Bible where they say to spare the rod is to spoil the child. But most of those people have not really taken the time to understand what godly discipline in the home should look like. And unfortunately, too many people who are raising children have not taken the, under, the time to understand either. There is a distinct difference from when your child is out of hand and unruly. There's a distinct difference to sitting down with that child with focus and with gentleness, explaining to them their error, explaining to them why the behavior is not just the important thing, but that the heart is what we are concerned about, showing them that in order to be pleasing to the Lord God, we need to listen to His Word, we need to trust His power to overcome our sinful natures, and then giving them a little discipline and then praying with them, showing them that you care about them so that they're dissuaded from doing that. That's entirely different than saying, I am at the end of my rope, grabbing your kid by the arm and spanking them on the bottom so their legs fly out from underneath them. That is not godly discipline, is it? That's not loving. In the same ways, there are times when you'll need to bring harsh truths to people that you care about in your church, but you need to do it the right way. You need to do it with their reconciliation in mind. You need to do it in such a way that you're giving them every opportunity to repent and to respond in a loving way to your loving rebuke. So let us be gentle to one another, not harsh, not manhandling one another, not impatient, but caring about the well-being of our brothers and sisters. And then lastly, he says, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Be humble in the way that you talk with others. And this may be perceived by the world as you being soft. So be it. If that's what the world thinks that gentleness and concern is, if that's what the world thinks that true love is, softness, weakness, then let them think that. Their opinion is not the opinion that matters. And you know, if you know Christ, you have seen the power of His mercy. You have seen the absolute strength in the way that He has gently called you out of your sin. You have seen how He's striven with you, how He has listened to you in prayer. You know that it is not weak to be courteous. You know that it is kindness and power to show someone love. Our differences are going to make us not always match up in the way that we speak to one another. So we must be patient. We've got to learn about the person that we're talking to. They may be from a different culture. They may be from a different background. The words that you say to them might mean something different than, than you intended them to say. So take your time. Listen, church. A good Christian has got to work on their listening skills 
Because a good communication from one person to the next is dependent upon good listening. If my default attitude is to love and value another human being, it makes sense that I would show courtesy towards them. Being patient, giving them the benefit of the doubt when I may have misunderstood, exercising discretion about sharing my opinions. You know, this is an interesting fact. Every opinion that you have, you don't need to share it. You know that? I didn't, I didn't know that until late in life, but uh, there are all these opinions that you probably have about life. Some of them you just keep them to yourself. You know? Imagine that. You just keep them in your heart and in your head. Because if you say everything you think, if you broadcast every opinion, you are giving people multiple opportunities to think differently than you. You are, you are emphasizing the divisions instead of recognizing and rejoicing in what brings us together. So we don't need to be such an opinionated people. Let's stand on the things that matter. If I've spent so much time boring you with my opinions on life, and then I start to talk to you about Jesus, and you've already shut me down because I wanted to tell you about the weather and, and economics and politics and my sports team and my favorite whatever in life, then I might not have an opportunity now to share with you what really matters. So have a certain economy with the way that you speak. Don't overwhelm people with your ideas don't feel like you need to be compelled to tell a better story than they just told. But rather, be gentle in the way that you talk to folks. Be courteous. Let what they say stand. Give, some, give yourself some time to digest the things that they tried to speak to you about before you haul off on them and tell, you, tell them how they're wrong. Now, that none of this cancels out the need to show faithfulness to the biblical instruction of confronting a brother, but rather it dictates how that must be done. With love, with consideration, wanting ultimately the betterment of the person that we're approaching, not their demise. The implications of this little jewel of wisdom in Ecclesiastes 7 are huge for a Christian who's living under the promise of a new covenant. Consider the cautions that our Savior gave to his disciples before he completed his earthly mission. Before Jesus was slandered, before he was spoken evil of in a public arena, before the most respected Jewish people in his community called him a blasphemer and levied false claims against him, what did he tell his disciples? If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew, you see in verse 11 that Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice the words that Jesus chose to use here. Blessed are you when. Not blessed are you if, but blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Same topic as Ecclesiastes 7, 21-22. He's dealing with the same thing about evil spoken against. And he is telling his disciples, ready yourselves, this will happen to you. And it will happen to you to a greater degree than it would have otherwise because you are now associated with me. Our connection to Jesus Christ is like a gigantic crosshairs on our back in this society where Jesus is often pushed to the side. If you stand for the truth and you love your Savior in a public and vocal way, then people will say ugly things about you. How many of us can say that we have spent much time sincerely preparing ourselves to see these kinds of offenses? Most of us would still be shocked if a non-believer made a vile accusation against us. We'd be shocked. We might even feel like we were being discriminated against. But this is not only a possibility. It is a reality that Jesus tells us will occur if we are his. We should expect it. More than that, we should prepare ourselves for it. Take note also that Jesus didn't say here that the evil words would necessarily be uttered against them by unbelievers. The, the stiffest opposition that Jesus' earliest followers had as they tried to spread this good news and this gospel was by and large by those very people who said they loved Yahweh, 
who lived their lives according to the patterns of the Old Testament Scripture. They were the biggest opponents to the early church. So we can't expect it to be radically different than that today. There will be many who call in the name of Jesus, but they still desire to persecute you because of the godliness you insist on living by. Speaking the truth and standing up for the radical gospel of salvation will result in others being threatened and offended by your faithfulness. Some of them may be even professing believers who are uncomfortable that you are making them look bad by actually trying to live out the orders of your Savior. What might be said of you? What kind of criticisms might find their way to your ears? What should you prepare yourself to hear? Are you ready to be called closed-minded? Are you prepared to be called intolerant and hateful for the things that you stand for, for the things that Christ have told you must shine in your life? Because that's what a real Christian is, at least according to the standards of the world that we live in. The world says that you are intolerant if you claim that God's Son is the only way and the only truth and the only hope for life that you have. Are you ready to bear the label of intolerant if you preach these things? Because if you are a biblical Christian, then you believe that. That is the claim that Jesus made about himself in John 14, 6. So by saying yes to Christ, you are saying that many other ways of thinking, many other ways of life in the world are incorrect. Are you ready to say that? True Christian, you believe that a very sincere Buddhist or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness will not experience heaven because they still bear the weight of their own sin. That is, unless they repent and trust in the one sacrifice that is worthy and capable of taking away all sin. If they do, then they have life. But apart from Christ, they have no life. To hold that belief might get you slandered. It will often offend the average American who values good intentions more than they value truth. Christian, the day will likely come when you will encounter someone who's going to want you to play along with their identity fantasy. They're going to want you to call them by pronouns that do not describe the actual physiological gender that God assigned to them. And the very fact that you don't immediately grant them that wish, the very fact that your conscience compels you to weigh those implications, to think it through, to consider whether you are being courteous by doing that or being dishonest by playing along, the very fact that you want to think those things through and you're not instantly saying, yes, 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 is enough evidence for most of the people in the world to say, you're a hater, you're intolerant, you don't care about other people. Are you ready for that? How will you respond to those claims? How will you carry yourself in the face of that kind of verbal slander? It may be impossible to know exactly how we will react, but if we're not even ready for it, if we have not prepared our conscience and steadied our fragile egos against that kind of an assault, then the odds that we will melt under that kind of social pressure are exponentially greater. So praise God for this book of Ecclesiastes that amazingly, a thousand years before Jesus, is preparing us to handle the hard words of others that don't believe the truth that God has revealed to us through His Son. Ecclesiastes 7, 21-22 is in great harmony with the words of our Savior. Here the preacher tells us that we cannot take to heart all the things that people say. That doesn't mean that you disregard every criticism or turn a blind eye to the possibility that you might yet have something to learn in this life or that you might not have been as loving as you should have in your last statements of truth. Communication is hard. You will not always get it right. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his own body. Any of those here today? No. We all stumble in these ways. So you would be arrogant not to consider someone's claim against you. You would be arrogant to not consider it, even if you don't take it immediately to heart. But if you're speaking the truth and speaking it in love, you don't need to fear the things that others say against you as a result of being what Christ has made you into. Do not let a criticism 
or someone's bad opinion of you undermine the foundation of faith that you have in the one true God. They will call you closed-minded. Don't let that wound you deep. To a degree, you are closed-minded. By the way, anyone with a belief about anything has to be described as closed-minded, right? Because they have logically concluded that not every claim is true. They have closed one door because a real door is open. Absolute open-mindedness might be the goal of someone who's trying to go on a drug trip, but it is not the way to find meaning in life. If we want purpose, if we want meaning and truth, then we must be willing to close the doors to the deceptions of the world and peer only at the things that are good and lasting and eternal and true. Allow your mind to be closed off to wickedness and don't succumb to the pressure to apologize for that. When people speak against you because you speak for Christ, you don't have to tremble. You don't need to second-guess your message. Every fallen human fancies themselves a judge of good and evil. But God is the only judge and jury that needs to really be a concern to your heart. So Christian, are you representing Jesus? Then their harsh words against you are attacking Jesus. They're not really attacking you. When they speak against you, they're speaking against your Savior. They will continue to oppose him until the Lord softens their heart and shows them their need to repent, just as he did the same to you. Are you truly concerned with their soul, despite the hard things that they say against you? It is sadly common for immature disciples to hurl hurtful words at non-believers under the veil of evangelism or apologetics, when all they are really doing is boosting their own egos at the expense of someone who needs to see truth married to love. Are you ready to identify with Christ even if that means he allows you to endure the kind of curses that were hurled at him? Last Sunday night, we, uh, we had a theology night in here. Thank you for everybody who came out. I hope that if you haven't gone to one of those that you'll make it a point to try to join us on a Sunday when we have one of our evening services. We do them about every six weeks or so. And we were watching the documentary on the Puritans. And the Puritans are a hugely misunderstood people in history. A lot of people look down upon the Puritans. They say that the Puritans were anti-joy. They say that they were completely academic and against emotion, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. These were people who found incredible joy, who were emotionally moved by the truth of Jesus Christ and about the, the sincere purity of the gospel. And yet in this, this documentary, one of the people they interviewed was was talking about the difference between preachers today and preachers in the Puritan era. And Steve Lawson, one of my favorite, favorite preachers, he said, the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. <laughs> the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. That <laughs> seems a little strange at first, right? I could think of a whole bunch of problems with preachers today, but why is it a problem that people don't want to kill them? Because... In an effort to try to become acceptable to the world, some of God's strongest spokesmen, these ordained men who are supposed to be brave and speak the truth, have watered down the message to such a degree that it is not offending anyone anymore. It is not displaying the truth of the gospel. It is not showing the sin of mankind. It is not showing the solution and how it can only be found in Christ. And so while what... Dr. Lawson said with a little bit tongue-in-cheek, you understand what he means by that. If we are going to represent the Lord, we've got to be ready for the arrows and slings of the world. That is the reason why he gave us the shield of faith, so that we'd be ready to overcome the attacks of those who do not understand Christ or who do not agree with Christ. You may avoid the kinds of curses that a Christian is subject to, but only by living like someone who is not a Christian. There is a fate far worse than being wrongly condemned by your peers. Ready yourself to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who knows the depth of your heart, who has a record of every word you have ever uttered. Be ready to stand before him with a clear conscience that you spent your days speaking of him in truth, that you spoke that truth in love, to the glory of the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? Almighty God, we, we have so much to learn. Father, I, I pray that as we come to this difficult but beautiful book of Ecclesiastes, that you would not let us fall into a tailspin of confusion, but that rather we would use Scripture to interpret Scripture, that we would understand your words by the other things that you have revealed to us, God. And we've been able to see that this book of Ecclesiastes, which so many people claim is a depressing book, a, a hopeless and despairing book, is far from that. God, as this preacher is seeing that mankind doesn't have the tools to find contentment and happiness apart from you, he is also then proving to himself and to his reader that our truest joy comes when we find our hope and grounding in you, Lord God. And with the blessing and benefit of the New Testament revelation also given to us, Father, we know that that hope is all founded in Jesus Christ, your Son. And so I pray that, Lord, as we stand for him, as our whole view of the world changes now because he has redeemed us and he has brought us out of that darkness of sinful rebellion to him and into this marvelous light, Lord God, I pray that we would, we would rejoice in that light, even if it stings the eyes of the lost even if people are prone to be offended by it, even if prone, people are prone to insult those who go after Christ and who give their lives to the one true King. Father, let us be concerned with the only judge that truly matters, Lord. Let us be concerned with your instruction to us. Father, I pray that you would give us a stronger faithfulness. I pray, Lord God, that you would take away our fears and that in any moment where we might feel like we are being discriminated against or bullied, at any time, Lord, we feel like we are being treated unfairly, that we would remember the degree to which Christ was willing to suffer to pay the debt of our sin for us. Lord God, it is so good to be near to you, and that could not have happened except for by his suffering and blood. So we thank you, Lord God, that this Savior who is indeed risen, the Savior who has conquered death and sin, will also be the great strength of our souls as we walk through this world, not as resident citizens, but as pilgrims seeking a land that you are taking us to. We pray that you would guard our words, help us to not be offensive in the way that we speak, help us to receive offensive words with grace and with peace, for you are our great comfort, you are our portion, and in you we can be satisfied. We pray this all, Lord God, in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.